And welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. For those of you that are new to us, I'm just going to give you a little blurb here uh, so you know exactly you know what we're about. Basically, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. And we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and, and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose. Um, <clears throat> my own mother had uh, lived with the disease for 30 years, was diagnosed uh, or started having symptoms, I should say, in her mid-50s and lived to the age of um, 86. And so I, I personally know the challenges that families uh, deal with um, when it comes to Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. At our core, Alzheimer's Speaks uh, believes that collaboratively, the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia is by doing it together. And I know that that's working because of all of your likes and clicks and shares. You see, each of you has had a huge impact on raising awareness just by sharing our information and our content that we have on Alzheimer's Speaks. Um, because Dr. Oz and Cheercare named us the number one influencer online. And again, when you um, listen to one of our radio shows and you share that with your Facebook friends, your Twitter tribe, your LinkedIn colleagues, um, et cetera, it, it just allows more information to be available when people are ready to tap into it because there is a person every three seconds being diagnosed somewhere in the world, and it's so critical that we get this information out there. Along with uh, our radio show, we also do um, a webinar series twice a month called Dementia Chats which is free to the public, and um, our experts on dementia chats actually have dementia. We also uh, just started a new video interview, which is called Conscious Caring Resources, where we interview a variety of people, but it's just going to be in a video format. We also have a blog, and I personally do speaking and training as well. So we have lots of great resources. We have an actual resource directory that you can become a part of or or utilize and uh, find uh, <clears throat> resources that you need while dealing with this disease. Um, I'm just so honored, you know, to do this show. Um, before I introduce our guest today, though, I just want to give a shout out to a um, a couple of companies. One is FreshBooks, and you know, if you're like me and have a tough time sometimes tracking all your finances, uh, FreshBooks is really a nice route to be able to go, and you can get a th uh, free 30-day trial. Just go to uh, gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive. That's gofreshbooks.com forward slash alive. There's also another free offering um, from Audible. You can get a free 30-day trial uh, to check out uh, one of the audiobooks, and they have tons of them to pick from. So uh, in order to tap into that, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash social audibletrial.com forward slash um, social and, um, you know, pick out one of the books and, and see what you think there. Um, who else do I want to give a shout out to? I, I um, you know, I'm so impressed with the Purple Angel Project, which Norms McNamara started. It's in over 19 countries now. Um, Alzheimer's Speaks is the U.S. launch for that. So if you're interested in utilizing a symbol that represents all dementias and isn't going to cost you any money, um, but you can put it on your Facebook, your Twitter accounts, your emails, your marketing materials. All you have to do is read one little 8.5 by 11 poster. Um, the Purple Angel Project is not about having all the answers. It's really about 
raising awareness. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and then go to our projects and initiatives page and click that you'd like uh, more information and I will get that out to you. Uh, Let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. Um, Patty Kerr is a certified Alzheimer's uh, educator. She's a keynote speaker, and she is a former Alzheimer's caregiver, and she's written this lovely book called I Love You, Who Are You? And it's all about loving and caring for a parent with uh, with dementia. And I can so relate to it. Patty and I have tried um, for actually a couple of years uh, to get together to have her on the show. So I'm really excited to have her with us today. So welcome, Patty. How are you today? I'm fine, Lori, and I'm excited and extremely honored. So thank you for this opportunity from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you for taking the time and not going up to the lake to to spend with us. I really do appreciate that very much. Um, Why don't you give our audience a little background, if you don't mind, um, before we start talking about the book, um, regarding, you know, how you got involved with Alzheimer's. What, What exactly happened in your life to trigger this? Well, honestly, Lori, I think like you, it was something that happened. It's like that quote John Lennon has, that life is what happens while we're busy making other plans. Um, I had, this was not in my life plan to become a certified Alzheimer's educator. It was not in my plan to write a book about Alzheimer's. Back in 1985, I actually wrote a life list, which included one day writing a book and I never expected the book I would one day write would be about Alzheimer's but it's where life took me Um, back in the 1970s my grandmother started getting more and more forgetful and my mother took her to the doctor and the doctor said it was just normal aging and not to worry about it but over time her memory and her behavior worsened and my mother took her back and this time The doctor said she had what at the time they called hardening of the arteries in her brain. Mm -hmm. And my mother and her five brothers and sisters took care of my grandmother for a while. And then ultimately, they ended up placing my grandmother into a health care facility. It just became too difficult. And my mother ended up being the only one really caring for my grandmother. And after that, we kind of all prayed that the disease, whatever it was, would never impact another person we knew or loved. But in fact, in 2000, my mother began exhibiting the symptoms of the disease and was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So again, it wasn't where I ever expected my life to go, but it's where life took me. And after my mom passed, um, I sat back and I thought about it. And I thought, you know what, we've been down this road twice. And while I can't change the outcome for my grandmother or my mother, maybe there's a way to pay forward everything that they went through and help others on a journey. So I spent about a year and a half interviewing over 100 other family and professional caregivers and actually wrote the book that I wished I'd had during all the years I cared for my mother because I'm I'm being completely honest when I tell you 95% of what is in my book I had no idea about during all the years I cared for my mother. So I wrote the book I wished I'd had on my nightstand during all those years. Well, and I can so um, relate to that because I know when my mom was going through this, you know, 30 years ago, there there really wasn't much of anything out there. And what there was, nobody talked about. Right. And so we've come a long, long ways, but we, we have miles and miles to go in terms of of helping families and communities at large and individuals diagnosed with this um, live well with it. So I, you know, I'm so glad that you wrote your book. I still haven't gotten mine out. I'm I'm working on a couple of them. (laughs) One of these days, I have so many different platforms I'm working on. Those are my excuses. But, um, you know, it takes, I don't know if people know what it takes to write a book. And it is a lot, a lot of work. And um, you really have to, you know, stick with it. I mean, even if the stories and stuff flow to you, the process is is um, all encumbrancing. And um, so kudos to you for, for sticking with it and getting this book out to help families. Um, when did you decide that, you know, um, that you were really going to, you know, put your toe in the water? I know you had mentioned that you had kind of said you were going to write a book, but you didn't really know when it was. But when did you decide, you know, hey, I, I have to write this book on on my my journey? Well, I think, honestly, it was, 
during all the years I cared for my mother, I used to, when I have strong feelings or I'm going through something intense, I've always written either in a diary or a journal or I write on small snippets of paper. And during all the years I had cared for my mother, I used to write things down because as you know, things come up and you don't know what's going on and you don't know how to deal with it. And I, for me, it helped to just write it down. And I kept throwing these in a box. And on the one-year anniversary of my mother's death, I actually took this box out and started looking through these papers. And I can't explain what happened, but something inside me, I don't know if it was spirit, I don't know what it was, but something said, you need to do this. And I, it not only helped me heal from the loss of my mother, but again, I also felt like in some way I was working with my mother and my grandmother to now pay it forward to help others. So it wasn't ever the book I thought I would write, but I am immensely blessed. It was the book that life led me to and that I was able to do it. Wow. Well, that's, uh, I, and I think writing is so healing during this process, even if you don't share it with anybody, just writing it down and, and throwing it in a box or a diary or wherever where no one else reads it. I, I think it's just, right. it's such a healing piece. And then for those that, you know, take that and, and do something different with it and go public with it, I, I think there's a whole nother layer of healing, you know, every time you, you talk about it and um, speak about it, not only for yourself, but then for your audience as well. And, and the other thing, Lori, was I was extremely honored at the number of people who came forward and said, I've been through it or we're going through it and I'd love to share our story. I'd love to share our experience and our insights. So it really was the courage of a lot of other caregivers that stepped up and said, this was difficult or this worked or that didn't work or this is what I would recommend. And I really owe so much to those people who were courageous enough and brave enough that they wanted to tell their story to help other caregivers. Yeah. Well, that's that's a beautiful thing that you did. Um, in one of the early chapters of your book, you talk about the first four steps every caregiver should take. Can you go through that with our listeners and, and share those four steps with us? Sure. Basically, what I asked the caregivers was, if your best friend came to you today and said, that their mother or father or spouse or whoever was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's, what would you tell them are the first four things they need to do? And the, the four things I'm about to share are the things that kept coming back over and over and in this order. The first thing they said was to get a diagnosis and the right doctor. Um, we all know that there are other conditions whose symptoms can mimic Alzheimer's and there are treatable conditions whose symptoms can mimic Alzheimer's. So it's really important to get a diagnosis and not just assume that because someone is getting a little forgetful that that's what it is. And to do that, we really need to get the right doctor or team of doctors who we trust and we can work with because they'll also be our care partner in the years to come. Um, the second thing they suggested was getting the family together. And Without question, they all said this was probably one of the most difficult things they had to do because after the diagnosis, then it becomes a process of not only the person who's been diagnosed, but the family accepting the diagnosis. And not everyone accepts it in the same way or in the same time, but it's important for the family to get together and discuss it and try to figure out their care plan and also to get together on a regular basis and tweak whatever they're doing and see if they need to make adjustments. Um, the third thing they said was to get their, everybody should get their financial and legal house in order. Um, there's a list of documents in there that, you know, we suggest people have in place. And, the thing we need to consider, Lori, is like your mom. Your mom lived a very long time with this disease. And depending on whatever you, journey you're going to take or what your path is going to be in caring for your loved one, you need to have a plan in place. Um, if you're going to try to care for your loved one at home, what is that going to look like for you in the years to come? 
I had a, one of the caregivers tell me, and it was something I never actually considered. She said her mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and her father was caring for the mother, and they had their wills in place and had named each other ex, as executor. Father was in very, very good health. However, as the mother's Alzheimer's advanced, he unexpectedly had a heart attack. She was still named executrix of his will, and now the family not only was dealing with the loss of their beloved father, but they were also dealing with going through the timely and heart-wrenching process of having the mother declared incompetent. So important to get those documents and plans in place. And the third is to get support. Um, as much as our extended family or friends love us, unless they've been through what we're going through, they honestly have no idea what we're going through. And it's important that we have people who get it and who get the disease and get exactly what we're going through. Oh, those are those are great, um, great um, tips for the first four steps. You know, get that diagnosis and get the right doctor and and neither of those are always easy. Um, as you know, uh, some people, it can take a couple of years to get the correct diagnosis. And that's right. one of the really frustrating things. And getting a doctor who really understands um, dementia itself. You might have a great neurologist, but if they don't truly understand dementia um, on, a, on an everyday livable basis, if they can only just talk to you medical model-wise, it's going to be very difficult um, situation in terms of communication, what, what I have found for many, and you know, or maybe tap into getting a um, behavioral psychologist and you know, social worker, and is you know, kind of that whole medical team um, built up there is a wonderful route. And then, you know, getting that family together. Um, and when you mentioned, you know, not everybody is uh, accepts it or they come to acceptance, you know, in different ways and different time frames, that can add a lot of um, drama and friction to a family. And so, um, you know, if you have had family dynamics in the past that haven't always been pleasant, they're not going to go away just because someone got ill usually. Um, what I have found, and I don't know if you found it to be true, but usually it it worsens exactly. um, in those situations. And so um, some people may even need to go see, you know, a psychologist or a counselor themselves just, you know, for support on that one-on-one. And I think that that's perfectly perfectly fine. And, and typically there'll be a lead horse that comes out of the family dynamics, one person who's going to step up and kind of take charge. And um, that may be really well accepted. It, there may be, it may be accepted by some and not all. Um, it just depends on the individuals in stake. And then the financial and legal information, you're so correct on getting that stuff lined up. And I, I think one of the mistakes I see the doctors, um, make in my personal opinion is you know they they state that in terms of an end of life thing and you know and they really take away people's hope and i think that they really need to start rephrasing that 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 is just um a good business you know if you, if you want to be in control of your life which everybody does if you want to be independent then these are all pieces that we all need to be looking at at all ages of life but it's even more critical when an illness comes around that they're in order um, and th- that's something that families can even do together sometimes to ease the burden of it being a, a true end of life thing because you know for my mom um, you know, it would have been 30 years. That's not, people wouldn't look at that as an end of life issue, you know, but yet a lot of the doctors, you know, make it sound sometimes when they get diagnosed that, you know, time is really, really short. And, um, and so that's just, you know, things that I hear from those with dementia and then getting support again, such a critical aspect, um, taking time for yourself, um, as a as a care partner is very critical, or as one who is diagnosed, there's a lot of great support out there now with dementia mentors and um, you know all all different kinds of groups, uh, social media wise, uh, that people are connecting all around the world. So um, I love those four points. Can you can you tell us for those four steps? You know how did how did it work out in your family? How did you handle each of those steps? <laughs> Well, again, remember, we didn't know this during the years we were caring for mom. So 
initially the diagnosis, I started seeing things happening with my mother and I was getting more and more concerned. And what I ultimately ended up doing was writing a letter to my mother's doctor. My mother was extremely social. She loved to talk. She loved to laugh. And she was gratefully, physically, very, very healthy. So I knew and she was going to see her doctor twice a year for maybe 15 minutes for a quick checkup. And she was able to mask the symptoms by laughing or kidding or just joking around with him. So I sat down and I wrote him a letter and I told him I understood he couldn't talk with me about this, but that in those 15 minutes he was spending with my mother, she was probably masking what I was seeing going on at home. And it was increasing in frequency and increasing in intensity. And I gave him a list of things. And I said, next time you get together with my mother, please just pay attention to this. And I never heard from him, but they did. he did call my mother in for a medical exam. And I was at my parents' house, and when they walked back in, my mother stormed past me into the bathroom, and I said to my dad, well, how did that go? And he said, not very good. He said he told her she's in the beginning stages of Alzheimer's. Well, she came out of the bathroom. What had happened is her doctor had given her a sample of Aricept, had told her what his findings were. Well, she had gone into the bathroom and flushed the Aricept down the toilet and came out of the bathroom and said, first thing, I will never go back to that doctor. And second thing, there is nothing wrong with my brain. And when there is, I'll tell you people. So that took care of getting the diagnosis. It didn't go <laughs> so well. Um, so then getting the family together, I said to my dad, what are we going to do? And he said, nothing. And I said, well, Pop, we need to talk about this. And he said, we're never going to talk about it. He said, if your mother knows she has what her mother had, it will kill her. So honest to Pete, Lori, we never talked about it. I also knew that my parents had made what I call the promise to one another, that if either of them ever got sick, they would care for another one, each other in their home. And I knew that if it became too difficult, that I would stop working and help my father. So that was the whole getting the family together. Um, that kind of took care of itself. We didn't get together, but we all knew what was going to happen. Financial and legal, my mother was brilliant with that. She had everything in place. And I'd been working since I was 14. I'd begun to you know, save up some money, and I had a retirement fund going. And when it came to the point where my father was struggling with caring for my mother on her own, I just stopped working, never stopped to think how that was going to impact me financially. And long story short, I ended up going through my savings and my entire retirement account. So didn't stop to think about that. And then getting support, I had a very dear friend every single month invited me to go to the Alzheimer's Caregiver Support Group. And every month I told her she was crazy. And I told her I was doing this 24-7 and the little bit of time I had in any given day or week, I didn't want to spend it with a bunch of strangers talking about Alzheimer's. But I'm going to tell you, I went August 2007, I went. And I told her, I'm going this one time to shut you up. And it was a one-shot deal. I went, and when I walked in, I'd learned things that night that completely changed my approach to caregiving. Unfortunately, without my knowing it, we were in the last six months of my mother's life. But it was huge in the way I approached my day and caring for my mother. I mean, I finally, finally got it. And also, life doesn't stop to allow you to just care for someone with Alzheimer's. I mean, you still have to go on with your life. In addition to the Alzheimer's, about a year later, my mother was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she wanted to go through the treatment. About a year after we got finished with that, my husband was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. We went through that. So life doesn't stop, and that support was so, so critical. Unfortunately, I didn't get it until the end of the journey, but I was grateful it was there at that point because, like I said, we were at the end of my mother's journey, and those people were there to really lift me up and support me in those final months. Wow. Um, it, it amazes me um, listening to your story on how similar um, in many ways they are to, to my own. And I think that, um, you know, every time I hear somebody talk, I mean, there, there's just so many similarities that we all go through. And, 
and struggle with. Um, it's just kind of incredible. Um, you know, when you said you, you, you know, went to the support group kind of to show them, you know, there wasn't enough time, but okay, I'm just going to make this stop, you know, type deal. (laughs) And, and I, I did that with, uh, with girlfriends, you know, they kept asking me to go out to coffee and I just kept saying, no, 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 I couldn't. And then, you know, one day I just really, and actually snottily said, I'll give you 10 minutes of my time. Like I'm the big queen bee coming to town. (laughs) And and I thought, well, that will that will end this, uh, you know, of them bugging me to get together. And it was such a godsend. It was just, uh, you know, it was like, why did I not do this before? Because you just don't realize how deleted and depleted you're getting, um, not only um, emotionally, um, but like you said, financially and stuff too. You know, <clears throat> I uh, I totally get that. And you just, you step up to do the right thing and you have no idea um, what the long-term financial effects are going to be, you know, for you in terms of doing that, um, because it's just what you're supposed to do. And um, I, I think a lot of people are blindsided with that or, you know, the conversation with the doctor not going very well um, is, is, is really more common than what anyone would ever care to believe is. Um, and, and that needs to change. And I know that there are some changes taking place now with um, even medical students now are doing internships with people living with dementia so that they have a better understanding of what their life is like and how to communicate and, and things. But we've got a long, long ways to go with this disease, in my, in my opinion. Um, now, you talked with a lot of different caregivers that, that shared tips, um, you know, about living with this disease. And, and you know, one of the things that I liked was you, you talk about the joyfulness of being, you know, a caregiver, a care companion, a care partner, whatever you want to say. Um, and I'd love for you to share some of those with us because I think a lot of people forget about that side of the journey. Sure. Um one of the things I talk about when I um, am speaking with caregivers, and it's one of the things that a lot of the caregivers shared with me, was the importance of laughter. Um, there was a study done at the University of Iowa many years ago, and they took people with Alzheimer's-like amnesia, and they showed them, at one point they would show them funny um, TV shows or movies, and at another time they would show them sad TV shows or movies. And what we were, they were looking at is how these TV shows or movies were impacting the people. And what they found is six minutes after the clips ended or the movies ended, the people had no recollection of what they'd seen. But 30 minutes after, they were still impacted on an emotional level. And what was even more interesting, Lori, was that the more memory impaired the individuals were, the more they were impacted on an emotional level. And I tell caregivers, it's important for you to laugh. It's important, even if you're concerned they're not going to understand the joke, they're going to pick up on the emotion in the room. They're not only going to pick up on the emotion, but they're going to oftentimes mirror the emotion in the room. So important to laugh. Another thing that came through, they shared a lot of tips, but a lot of what it boiled down to, honestly, was a deliberate shift in our thinking and our expectations, not only of ourselves, but of the person that we're caring for. Um, Caregivers, honestly, are extraordinary people. I mean, that's hands down how I feel about them because they are caring for another living soul, which in my eyes is the work of an angel on earth. But what I find is that caregivers typically set the bar extraordinarily high for themselves. And when they fall short of that bar, they often become very critical of themselves and they focus on what they didn't do rather than what they did in that given day. And again, it's important to shift your thinking and look at all the things you're doing as a caregiver in any given day rather than focusing on maybe that one little thing you wished you'd approach differently. And the other thing is to shift our thinking about the person we're caring about and to understand that just like we're doing the best we can based on what we know in this moment, they're doing the best they can based on the abilities and skills they still have. They're not doing any of this stuff to upset us or anger us. 
it's the disease, it's not them. So again, it's really a shift in our thinking because we still have the ability to control our thinking and to control our actions and reactions. And through all of that, it's just, again, shifting our focus, shifting it to our blessings of the day, shifting it to keeping things light, shifting it to having a wonderful moment with them and really just continuing to laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just such a critical piece. Um, and it's one of the, I think laughter is one of the first thing that that kind of leaves the room when somebody gets diagnosed. And it's one of the most critical pieces that helps us engage and feel purposeful and um, you know, and hopeful. And, um, you know, and again, it doesn't cost us anything. Um, it's a, it's a critical piece of care that we really have to take much more seriously in terms of its side effects, because, you know, laughter actually changes our, our, our chemical balance in our body. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just those little moments that you remember. I mean, if, do you want to remember stuff that, you know, scares you or makes you cry or makes you laugh? You know, most of us would choose, hey, give me the stuff that's going to make me laugh and put a smile on my face and make me feel content, you know. And so we have to create that, that those things. We have to look for those moments. And we really do have to have to cherish those things, um, I think, so much more. Um, and part of it, I think, is just even the words that we choose, you know, we we still, and I use it too, the word caregiver, because that's what everybody says, but it just implies that we're not getting anything in return. And, you know, I like the words um, care partner and care companion much better because then I think you get more relationship-based versus task-oriented. Oh, that's beautiful. And, I love that. And then when we're relationship-based, it gives us permission to laugh and cry and have emotions instead of just checking crap off our stupid list, you know, <laughs> and and getting overwhelmed. And um, so I, I think that that's very very important. Um, one of the things I was um, interested in was, uh, and I always find this interesting when I talk with authors, is how did you pick the title for your book? Is that something that, that your mom said to you? I love you. Who are you? Actually is. Um, <laughs> it's actually the, the prologue to my book because what it what happened is my mother was my best friend. We did everything together. She had control and possession of some of my deepest, darkest secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was absolutely my best friend. And again, because my grandmother had gone through this at a time when we really didn't know anything about the disease, and because I still didn't know anything about the disease, what ended up happening was I was convinced, even after my mother was diagnosed, that we would never, ever get to the point where my mother would forget me or forget my name, or forget who I was. And I share the story in the beginning of the book about the day that I was actually sitting with my mother and giving her a manicure, and she looked at me and she said to me, you are always so nice to me, I love you. And then she paused and she ended it with, but who are you? And in that moment, Lori, I knew that my world had just shifted on its axis. Everything, the entire thing had changed. So that's where the title, I Love You, Who Are You, came from, that moment in time. Wow. Yeah, and, and it does, uh, you know, that importance of hearing our name and knowing <clears throat> how connected we are, um, we value so much. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure you found out, you know, your relationship was so much deeper with right. your mom than just a name. And, and that is something I think so important that we have to educate people on. You know, we, we, we are more than a name, you know, we're, we're energy that's intermingled. We, you know, sit contently in silence. Um, we don't always have to be busy. We don't always have to be fixing something because we can't fix this. Um, but we can bring calm and peace and laughter, um, if we want. And, and I, I know for me, I mean, if I get this disease and there's good possibility I could, um, you know, I don't want to be kept busy. I, I want to be content. I want to be peaceful. I want to feel engaged. Um, I want to feel loved, you know, so don't just have me go play bingo or keep me busy because it makes you feel good. 
you know, I'll, I'll be kind of like Harry Urban, who's diagnosed with dementia, um, says, and I just think it's a brilliant statement. You know, I like to relax before I got dementia. I still do. <laughs> right. Know? And it's focusing on who was the person before the disease. Ex- what did they like to do? Exactly. exactly. You know, I tell caregivers that sometimes the most important thing you're going to do in any given day is nothing. Sometimes the most important thing you're going to do is just be there for the person. But we get, you know, we get task oriented. We focus on our agenda, but the relationship always, always trumps a task or an agenda. Um, it's really about being connected to the person. And like you said, just sitting. The most precious moments I had with my mother were the nights that my dad and my brother and I stayed, sat on the back porch and just sat there holding her hand and watching the birds at the bird feeder. Mm-hmm. most precious moments I have with her. Yeah. You know, you have a, a chapter called A Journey of What Ifs, and I love this because you start out talking about, you know, Alzheimer's isn't logical, it's not predictable, and one of the most difficult things that caregivers face is knowing how or what to prepare for, for the unknowns. And, um, and, can you talk a little bit about what people will find in this chapter? Because I, I just found it really interesting um, how you how you broke it that down in terms of, you know, safety and, and how do you look at safety and, you know, just different aspects here. Sure. My best friend actually came up with the name for that chapter because her father um, had Alzheimer's at the time that I was working on the book. And she called me one day and she said, you know, I've read through the drafts of your book and I just don't know if I'm ready for this. It's all the what ifs that scare me the most. And the what ifs are obviously like what you were talking about, all the behaviors or the things that can surface, um, the pacing, the agitation, delusions, hallucinations. And what I did is I gave caregivers, care partners, a list of different things that can surface and said, if this happened on your journey, tell me what worked. Tell me what you would have done differently, and tell me what you would want other people to know if this behavior surfaced. Because again, I really wanted a book that people could put on their nightstand, so that if something surfaced in the middle of the night and there was no one they could reach out to, they could flip through the book and say, okay, let me try this. Maybe this could work. Um, And there's so many different things that came up. So there was one of the things that came through was trying to find the trigger behind a behavior, mm-hmm. looking to see if it's a sudden change, is it truly a change in a level of their abilities or awareness, or is there something underlying, you know, something environmental? Is it a drug interaction or reaction? Is it a urinary tract infection or dehydration or constipation or a vision problem, a hearing problem. So really they gave just a lot of really incredible information and insights to help other care partners. Yeah, I love this. And I am just going to highlight some of the, some of the things um, because you talk about um, things to, to think about, you know, safety first, you know, safety at home. And you just have, I mean, they've just got all kinds of ideas here. And you talk about, um, you know, safety evacuation. You talk about communication and what can come up. Um, Hygiene from dressing and bathing and toileting. And these are all huge issues that can just drive people bananas. Um, Nutrition. Um, it's just it it just goes on and on. Driving, you know, how how do you stop somebody from driving? And um, you know, you talk about um, behavioral problems and and what to watch for. Finding this triggers, I think, again, people putting on that investigative hat, like you said, is just so critical. And so often we just snap instead of thinking that there really is a rational reason for their behavior you know, with this, um, it, we just haven't, we have to figure out what it is and, and what's causing it. But, um, you talk about sundowning and repetitive questions. And I mean, it just, it just, it, it goes on and on and on and on, um, with hiding and hoarding, hoarding and losing things and hallucinations and, 
um, you know, aggressive and, and violent behavior that can occur. Um, those are all, I mean, just the meat of of trying to live gracefully, you know, with the with the disease. And I just think it's so wonderful that you've pulled all these different ideas together for people because it isn't a silver bullet. It's a toolkit, you know, and every person reacts differently. A lot of times, every time that, you know, the trigger can come out one way and you might approach it in a certain fashion and it worked perfectly fine. And the next time you try the same approach and they're not going for it, you know, and so you always have to have something else up your sleeve um, in order to kind of remain calm and and um, be ready, you know, beyond the ready for for whatever comes. And um, beautiful lessons can come out of out of th- this whole process, though. Too, anyways, that's what I had found. Did you did you find you know once you kind of got in a rhythm with the disease um, that there were a lot of gifts that you received from um, being on this journey with your mom and your grandma. Oh, absolutely. I think anyone who is in a position where they're spending time with them, for for me it was a lesson in really living in the present moment. Um, if they were here today, they could care less about what's going on with the presidential election or what speed our Internet connection is. They were really my biggest teachers in really living in and treasuring the present moment and living in their reality. Um they were incredible in teaching me how to approach life with grace. Um, I know their journey wasn't easy, but they really, really taught me a lot about grace. Um, they, I think I actually learned more after they passed, and I had time to sit back and really reflect mm-hmm. on everything that I'd gone through with them. Mm-hmm. And when you're when you're in the in the dailiness of it i was so focused on that that i wasn't able to really stop and think about it but the good thing is i also in the midst of writing all these notes every day i would force myself to take a piece of paper and write one blessing that happened during that day to try to shift my thinking to not only how stressed out i was or upset i was in that day but to try to find one thing in that day that I was grateful for. And sometimes it would be sitting and watching the bird feeder. Sometimes it would be just sitting and belly laughing with my mother or sitting or taking her somewhere, listening to music and watching her dance around the room. Mm -hmm. Just the simple, simple, simple pleasures of life. Yeah, that, that I think we all take for granted until something kind of catastrophic hits. And then, it you know you just look at life different and there's just no way to go back to the way you used to look at it you just don't see it that way anymore and right. and i think that that is i think that's one of the biggest gifts this disease has to give us um you know if we choose to go there um when i was speaking in where the heck was i in uh, i think it was in tyler texas um last month and <clears throat> somebody said well why do you think the disease is here. And I said, I, I think it's because we're not listening. <laughs> you know, we are, we've gotten really off kilter. We're not treating each other very well. And this disease is going to force us to be human at a very basic level and get back to um, basic needs of relationship and, um, and, and physical and psychological needs of one another and really having to pay attention. And Absolutely. like you said, to be, to be present and I, I think it's I think it's here to to force us to be better. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she says, Oh my gosh, she says, I just started crying when you said that because her dad had um really bad hallucinations and after one of his episodes she asked him, Why do you think this is? And he said, Because we need to treat people better. Oh. You know. And she said at that moment he was just so clear in his mind. Um, but I, I do, I think in the hardest of situations, there is clarity, there is hope, there are lessons to be learned. If we ask ourselves, what is the lesson? It, it will come to us. And, you know, I see that in your, your questions, you know, on looking back in the journey in chapter eight, you know, you ask, um, what do you wish someone would have told you about the disease? What do you think, um, 
you did right, which a lot of times we don't look at what did we, what did we get right in this process? That's really important. And looking back, what would you have done differently? Um, These are all really great questions. What would you want other sons and daughters to know about loving and caring a parent, you know, for a parent with, with the disease? Um, You know, your, your questions are just really, really good. How have you been changed by this experience? You know, and um, it, it's it's impossible not to have been changed, I think, if you're part of this process. And, um, you know, you talk about life after after uh, giving care as well. So you just it, you did just a beautiful, beautiful job with this. And I I really encourage people to to go and um, buy this book again. It's called I Love You. Who are you loving and caring for a parent with Alzheimer's? Uh, by Patty Kerr, and you can go to her website, um, Patty, P-A-T-T-I-K-E-R-R dot com. And um, you can also find her on LinkedIn, or you can go to Facebook and um, just put in, I love you, who are you? And that will lead you right back to, to Patty as well. So if you're looking for, you know, an educator or a keynote speaker, um, you know, give her give her a jingle. Are you l- working on any other projects right now, Patty? Well, it's interesting. Um, like I said at the beginning, Lori, I never expected that. When I wrote back in 1985 that I wanted to write a book, I never would have expected the book I would write would be about Alzheimer's, but it was. Mm-hmm. And then I never thought after the book came out that I would be speaking and doing staff trainings, but I am. And then I thought, well, if I ever do write another book, logically, it will be about Alzheimer's or caregiving. But instead, two months ago, I came out with a new book called Magical Dogs. And it's about the connection and their true stories of people and the connection they had with their dogs. So I think I'm at the age and the place in my life where I realize that I am so blessed to be doing what I'm doing. My biggest hope, again, is that one day you and I never have to do this. Mm-hmm. That nobody ever needs my book. We never need to talk about this because we found a cure or a way to prevent it. But until then, I honestly wake up every day feeling immensely blessed that I'm able to do what I'm doing, not only in raising awareness, but in supporting caregivers and now with the new book and raising money to help animals in need. So I think I'm finally at the point where I'm old enough to understand, you know what, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and life will wake me up when it needs me to do something different. Mm -hmm. So no concrete plans right now. I'm just kind of enjoying the ride and staying open to opportunities and what may come my way. Wonderful. Well, I I thank you so much for all of your your hard work and sharing your story and others um, with us. And I you know I look forward to your new book as well, and uh, just wish you the best. Uh, thank you, Lori. And again, I cannot thank you enough for making this opportunity available to me. Um, I salute everything you're doing to raise awareness and support um, care partners. You are an incredible role model to the rest of us who are um, doing this. So thank you for everything you do. Wonderful. Well, listen, you have a wonderful Memorial weekend. And, thank you. And uh, tell your dad I wish him luck as he uh, rides down the road in the parade. I will. Uh, I absolutely will. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. Um, for Thank you. For um, those of you listening here on Alzheimer's Speaks on Alive and Social, I'm just going to give a shout out to a couple of my colleagues here. Uh, Apples to Apples that airs Monday at 2.30 uh, Central Time. And that uh, host of that show is Scott and Drew Applebaum, who's the father and son team who discuss sports. And you can check their show out anytime. Uh, just like Alzheimer's Speaks, everything is archived. So if you can't uh, be available Monday at 2.30, uh, don't worry about that. You can listen to their shows anytime. And Find out if Father really knows best. Another show you might be um, interested in is Joan of Art. And she does a podcast on Alive and Social, and she investigates and celebrates people who do art. And, um, you know, art is so popular now with dementia and getting people engaged. So you might pick up some ideas there. 
If you missed our last show on the 17th, we had 10 tips to make life easier when caring for someone with dementia. And we had Penny Garner with uh, Speckle on from the UK and uh, Cindy Lewinsky uh, from Dementia Friends, um, Dementia Friendly Communities, I should say, in northern Colorado, um, talking about her initiative there on um, May 10th, we uh, talked on our Dementia Chats webinar about what it's like to be a mother or father that's diagnosed with dementia and how that feels like on these on these holidays. This morning we had our session and we talked about dementia and anger, and I will be getting that um, posted here in the next couple of days so you can watch for that. The next Dementia Chats Live webinar will be uh, June 14th, so feel free to join us there. And uh, our last Conscious Caring resource, which is a brand new venue that we've started, which is a video interview um, platform, we were lucky enough to have Paul Ann Gordon with us, uh, who has vascular dementia, and she has written a booklet to help those diagnosed and those that care for people with vascular dementia. Uh, next on Conscious Caring Resources, we are going to be talking with Elon uh, Caspi, who is a behavioral therapist, and um, he's got some really cool stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. That will, that will probably come out in a week or so in the beginning of uh, end of May, beginning of June. And what else? I wanted to um, just highlight a couple of blog articles. One was about children caregivers, and it was a great um, musical video. And uh, that was posted on the 20th. There was also a really interesting article by Michael Ellenbogen um, called The Path of Alzheimer's. Why did it take so long? And um, just yesterday, the 23rd, I reposted something that Brian LeBlanc, who is also living with dementia, wrote. And it's entitled, I Hate You. Um, Pretty moving piece. I want to give a shout out before I go to uh, the Caregiver Alert Center, uh, where it's a a great place to have uh, information disseminated in case someone would wander. And it's a way for you to prepare ahead of time um, for that and a very reasonable fee. It's only $15 a year. Uh, to be able to have your your ducks in a row in case something like that would happen. In the meantime, um, check out our um, tools on alzheimerspeaks.com. Just become a member, and uh, you'll be able to download, for example, your memory chip, which helps you focus on is someone safe, happy, and pain-free. We'll talk with you soon. Have a great week. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.